Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of 16 Minutes, our show where we talk about what's in the news from our vantage point in tech. I'm Sonal, your host. And this week, we're talking about the news and the broader category of virtual care and telemedicine and more. And this is based on the news that um, the telemedicine provider Teladoc Health and the diabetes coaching company Livongo are merging. But the big why this is news is that this merger is arguably creating the first healthcare tech giant. The current CEO of Teladoc will be the CEO of the combined entity, which will be called Teladoc. So it actually feels more like an acquisition than a merger, even though it's being billed as a merger. And Livongo is being valued at $18.5 billion. It was $14.4 billion the night before this deal was announced. To be clear, none of this and the following should be taken as investment advice. See a6nz.com slash disclosures for more important information. And in any case, we are here to talk about the bigger trend and shifts, tease apart what's hype, what's real, as is the premise of this show, especially when it comes to buzzy headlines, and to help orient us on where we are on the long arc of innovation. So now let me introduce our two experts, A6nz general partners, Julie Yu and Vijay Pandey. Let's start off by talking about this specific deal. So first of all, I'm glad that you didn't say the word Teladongo, which is apparently the joint <laughs> name that makes me cringe. Teladongo. Anyways, um, it, this is a, a, a big effing deal for um, both like literally in terms of the dollar amount, as well as just the significance of you know what it represents, where virtual care is in particular. No one can doubt digital health is here. People have been wondering whether this would be a big space. And I think all signs point to this being the beginning. Uh, there's nothing like dollars with a B in it to get people's attention. So when you say the Bs, you're basically referencing the fact that the combined entity gives the companies, at least according to Piper Sandler, a joint enterprise value of about $37 billion, making it the largest of its kind to date. They said in their you know, analyst calls that it was a path to convergence or collision. When you look at something like a Teladoc, which is really urgent care focused, so they tend to be you know, very transactional, very low acuity. They explicitly state that this is not a replacement for primary care, but really just a means to triage pretty basic stuff. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have Livongo, which was more chronic disease focused, and their model is, is very much around coaching and monitoring. And um, they inevitably had to merge somewhere in the middle to sort of create a comprehensive healthcare offering. So basically, by doing this, they're combining and creating kind of an end-to-end digital health platform. You already talked about how they add value to each other. Essentially, for one, you add retention, and for the other, you add more distribution. Mm -hmm. But can you talk to me a little bit more about how it's sort of playing out when it comes to virtual care? So in terms of capabilities and what kinds of services do they offer, the two companies represent a mix of what traditionally has been known as telehealth. Actually, the, the interesting story about Teladoc, the reason they're called Teladoc is that originally their product was entirely phone-based. So it was a, really a call center model. And then eventually, uh, pretty recently, in fact, they they added other modalities, including interesting. video. Interesting, yeah. And so, but that, that uh, would be the second point to make, which is that it is multimodal. So it's video, it is um, phone, it is SMS. Uh, so you can do asynchronous interactions as well. And then uh, Livongo also has uh, the notion of remote patient monitoring built in. So they deployed connected devices to their members such that you can continuously capture whether it's glucose monitoring or weight based on smart skills. Right. And then the other piece um, that Livongo brings to the table, so Teladoc indexes a lot on physicians. Livongo has a heavy emphasis on coaching. And I think that's another interesting element to this is that physicians are the scarcest resource that we have in healthcare. And a lot of the game of how we're going to reduce costs of, of care delivery is how do you only use those scarce resources when you really, really need to? 
And, and then how do you surround those with lower level support? So in this case, coaches, it could also be nurses, it could be other sort of ancillary care providers, as well as technology to automate certain interactions. So that's another big part of what these companies do is they have AI chatbot type capabilities where uh, I as a patient can just have a digital interaction with their system and the system will determine whether or not I actually need to talk to a human. I would add that when we think about digital, one of the hallmarks of anything digital or anything tech is scale and scalability. And then juxtapose that with healthcare, where we think of anything but scale. We think of that as bespoke doctors one-on-one. And so the hope and the promise of digital health, along lines of what Julie talked about, that you scale by including these other modalities uh, for communication, as well as other modalities for getting the clinical benefit. Those elements will be part of the greater trend. Right. The other key word when I think of scale is access. Mm-hmm. Initially, it is all about access. I do think that the reason that employers have bought this service has been primarily driven by my employees are waiting four weeks to try to, to get a, a primary care doctor appointment in real life. If I just give them Teladoc, that they can take advantage within 24 hours versus having to take time off of work. Okay. So to switch gears, I understand the broader category and also the why behind this deal, but now help me take pulse on the hype versus the reality here, given all the buzz out there about the news. So, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it's this is a, a milestone deal, but the scale of the joint entity, it's like a drop in the bucket. So if the merge entity is going to have roughly a billion dollars in revenue this year, that's like akin to a reasonably sized health system or hospital system. When you look at the transaction volumes, Teladoc projects 10 million visits this year, and there are roughly about over a billion outpatient encounters that occur every year in this country. So again, it's like a a percentage um, of the overall activity that's happening in this space, which is great relative to where we've been, but still a very, very small overall percentage. What it tells me is basically is that the the opportunity in the market is big for potentially multiple players. You know, it's tempting to make analogies to the earlier days of tech and ask, are there going to be a few big giants that come out of this? But the question on my mind, is this sort of the Google of the space that's about to grow or is this the Yahoo? Is this something where there's definitely some there there, but that there is product work yet to be done to be able to sort of fully realize the vision that people have had for digital health? First, one thing I'd ask is that it's very tempting to think about virtual health as purely a replacement for the in-doctor visit. But I think the real promise of, of virtual health is that we can go beyond the model of just these infrequent doctor visits, that virtual health can be a part of our lives more broadly, that you can have asynchronous communication, you can have monitoring every day for various things. And that's where maybe it gets really interesting, where this isn't intended as a poor substitute for the in-person experience, but this can do things that the in-person experience can't do. Yeah. And I think that's actually one of the big questions slash risks of this is seemingly, and a lot of the messaging that they've put out around this merger is around this concept of virtual primary care. And I would argue adamantly that primary care is not the model that Teladoc and Livongo represent. You know, like I said earlier, Teladoc is highly transactionally oriented. It's more about urgent care and triage than it is about the quarterbacking function of primary care and vice versa. Livongo, whereas it does have more of that quarterbacking function, it's really focused on specific conditions and they've expanded their footprint over time. But the integration is very non-trivial. It's almost on opposite ends of the spectrum where Teladoc doesn't necessarily care at all about whether you have a continuous relationship with any one provider, whereas Livongo is very much like we are going to own you as a patient for the end-to-end longitudinal journey. And so that's, I think, one of the big questions that comes out of this is how will they fill that huge chasm that exists between the two models that they represent? 
So you guys have thrown out remote patient monitoring. There's telemedicine. We talk about virtual care. We talk about digital health. And in fact, for uh, listeners of the 16 Minutes show, we did a fun debate about what is and isn't digital health on a previous episode. Can you guys quickly break down the terms for me? And let's talk then about the broader category we're talking about here and where we are. Yeah, there's many taxonomies that people have put out there. But conceptually speaking, Virtual care, I view as the umbrella care model that enables you to care for patients without having a brick and mortar presence. So that's kind of a broad umbrella. Remote patient monitoring is one of many functionalities that enables you to implement virtual care. And then the way that people typically talk about telehealth is synchronous encounter. So whether it's video-based or phone-based interaction with a patient. And typically also people are talking about that in the context of reimbursement. The telehealth visit is sort of the the atomic unit that payers and, and CMS especially are using to determine how providers should get compensated. Not to complicate things, but another terminology people throw around is health tech. So to me, the distinction between digital health and health tech is digital health is really the delivery of care services using technology. So typically they are consumer and physician facing, have um, yeah, an actual like care delivery component to them versus health tech uh, refers to the infrastructure that is needed to deliver that care. So that is more the EHR, the backend administrative functions. And the reason that you know this is all super exciting to us is that uh, it is a very, very analog and offline business. And, you know, the pandemic has been a forcing function to all of a sudden demonstrate how little we had the capability of doing without the reliance on like the in-person encounter and the brick and mortar um, facilities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the way I always think about it, too, is that many of the structural risks that that exist in an ecosystem or like a, a category, particularly healthcare, which, as we know, has been long riddled with Bommel's cost disease, where unlike other areas where the cost goes down with the introduction of tech, healthcare has not experienced that, neither has education, both of which are really hot points right now during this pandemic. And for me, it's always been that software is this way to create this kind of malleability around these hard structural silos. But as we've talked about a ton on the podcast, Julie, particularly when it comes to sharing data and stitching together these things, that is not quite a reality quite yet. And so now let's talk about where the pandemic effect does and doesn't play. Because on one hand, they use the word that this is sort of this inevitability, which is a word we like to use, we love to use when talking about innovation, because it's not a matter of if, but when. And the premise of this show, again, is about sharing where we are in that long arc. They also said that it's, quote, accelerated substantially as a pandemic has fueled rapid adoption of virtual care. But this might be a temporary thing, not really the new normal necessarily. Already, many patients are coming back to -to face-to-face. So I'd love to hear your quick take on where we are really when it comes to this pandemic effect. So there's a lot of different constituents here uh, to talk about the pandemic effect. We could talk about patients, payers, providers. And in some cases, I think we're going to see some uh, real movement. In other cases, there could easily be a snapback. Where this gets maybe a little more to connect to the Baumol's cost disease uh, sort of point is that if you can ever switch something from a service to a good, that's how you switch from one curve to the other. And so if you're a payer and you're looking at how can we try to have it both ways to try to reduce costs and improve care, to the extent that these things either decrease the cost of the service or turn some things from more of a service to more of a good, whether chatbot or other more digital approaches. And that's where I could see it getting really sticky. Part of the reason that Teladoc and Livongo benefited from this so much is that they had already spent years 
laying down the infrastructure. The fallout that you're going to see is that the traditional providers who scramble to put these like band-aid solutions in place, like all of them all of a sudden were scrambling to use, you know, Zoom and off-the-shelf consumer products to facilitate these virtual encounters. They'll have to go back and like shore up that infrastructure to make sure that it can effectively scale uh, going forward because a lot of them weren't able to scale to the level of, and the volumes that they were starting to see. And the other thing is the reimbursement aspect. CMS and commercial payers are now putting out their sort of point of view on fee-for-service revenue reimbursement models and what those will look like going forward. But Teladoc and Livongo demonstrated the ability to implement a membership type model or at least a capitated or prepayment oriented model where they're not getting fee-for-service payments for the most part. They are selling the PMPM membership through their employer channels. And in those situations, it doesn't even matter what the reimbursement rates look like. So there's less reimbursement risk. And that, I think, will be the harbinger of of the type of business model that virtual care providers can implement going forward. And those models are likely the more resilient ones going forward anyway. Julie raises a really important point here, which is that this isn't going to be just about the technology. Who can use this technology within the right business model that work within this system? That's the complex sort of uh, uh, judo that one has to do to be successful here is it's not just the technology. It's can you sort of crack the business model uh, um, problem? Can you find your way through that maze? I love that. I love that theme in general because, in fact, so much of the story of innovation is about that intersection of business models with technology. Even in fields like gaming, it's not just the platform shifts that drove change, but business models that really drove new behaviors. Mm -hmm. Yep. And technology, if it really is very powerful, will facilitate getting into business models that weren't possible before. Going back to this notion of who pays, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Tennessee is the first to make payment for virtual care permanent. Do you have any thoughts on where things are going to be post-pandemic here? Like the rubber band could snap back to, hey, we're not going to cover televisits, not just because it's a unit of the visit, as you said earlier, but because it's not real doctoring. (laughs) Or it could also go the other direction where they're like, hey, this makes a lot of sense. We can do other things. Like where do you sort of see that playing out? Yeah, it's a great point. I I think it's more likely not whether it's going to be reimbursed, but it's the level at which it will be reimbursed. So will it actually have parity with in-person encounters is the bigger question. And should it? That's also another question, because in theory, the opportunity here is that by use of technology, you are able to drive the cost structure of care delivery down very significantly. And we're not, we're exactly. still, we're still way too early to see the benefit of that. In fact, there have, there have actually been studies that argue the opposite, that the introduction of telehealth increases care in the near term because people utilize care more. The actual initial use of of telehealth might be a good thing to drive utilization up, right? Because you are more proactively engaging in a lower acuity service such that you can catch things sooner, but you need five to 10 years worth of data to actually demonstrate whether that's really proving an ROI. And so we're, we're still very, very early days in that regard. Is there anything important to pay attention to in the law policy kind of regulatory side here? Because, you know, just this past week, they introduced the Telehealth Modernization Act. And I heard a statistic that nearly 20 telemedicine bills have been brought to the House floor and about the same number in the Senate. Do you have any thoughts on what that may or may not help accelerate or decelerate when it comes to virtual care? I always talk about how regulation is actually the means by which massive category opportunities get created in healthcare in particular. And so I think it's a net positive. The specific things that we hope will be made permanent are certainly the reimbursement piece, but also the the physician licensure laws have been another big barrier to 
adoption of, of, of virtual care. Medical licensure is, man, is governed at the state level. If I'm a provider in Massachusetts, I can only treat patients in Massachusetts. And so that's like another big set of policies that changed during the pandemic was to enable care across state lines, which is the only way by which we're going to actually unlock the full potential of virtual care, right? If you need to, to tap into national supply, you can only do that if, um, if, if doctors can treat patients no matter where they are. Right. I think the other hallmark is really being global. And this is at odds with healthcare, which, you know, traditionally we think of as inherently local. And yeah. the more that um, we can sort of remove the artificial boundaries that are done by regulation, it gets interesting, not just for the U.S., but also there could be global players in this. And you think about like uh, remote doctors in India uh, helping. There's different ways that we can handle the scaling and the cost. What I love about this is it reinforces the theme again, that software not only breaks down structural hard silos and barriers, but it also breaks down borders, to your point, BJ. So beyond the pandemic, what does this growing trend of digital health, virtual care, what does it mean for incumbents? And then we can talk about what it means for startups. Let's start with what this deal in particular means for the incumbents. The two major incumbents to, to comment on would be your providers, like your traditional health systems and even independent provider groups, uh, and then the payers. When it comes to the providers, people always talk about how providers should be shaking in their boots about Amazon. And I think it's things like Teladoc and Livongo that will take business away from uh, from traditional providers um, because they just reduce by 10x the friction that is necessary to engage with clinical services. You know, it's interesting to make an analogy to e-commerce here, which is that if you looked in the early days of Amazon as being a poor copy of a mall, you might think, well, look, I can't try on the clothes. I can't do this. You know, all the things you can't do. But really what people found is that you don't need to try on shoes or you don't need to try on the clothes if you sort of get used to a new approach because the friction is so reduced. And I think that's what excites me about this space is that the friction of just going to the doctor, and we've all had that, like you have a kid that's sick and it's 11 p.m. Do you take them to the ER? You know, and there's yeah. like, are, are you better off just letting them sleep? You're going to lose a day of work. Like just having that friction removed is just a different world. And so I think um, it's going to be interesting to think about the current providers. Are they doing, they're doing things that you couldn't do any other way, but is there aspects of Sears versus Amazon here where um, eventually people will get 90% done a different way and some of it won't be as good, but will be good enough? There also could be ultimately a partnership opportunity for organizations like this to, to serve as flex capacity for the traditional providers. Part of the reason that virtual care was so constrained before was simply supply-side constraints. If you think about the assets that Teladoc and Livongo represent, just at the coarsest level, they are a pool of provider supply and tools that enable access to that provider supply in a very flexible way. And also, by the way, uh, payer contracts. So you can imagine a world in which providers actually add to their services mix to be able to increase the footprint of services that they provide. And then similarly, on the chronic disease and care management side, imagine a wraparound service to the more sort of acute care oriented services that uh, hospitals provide, where they could contract with Teladoc and or Livongo to actually do the sort of the monitoring, the ongoing nudging. And then only escalate back to the physician when the signal detected through those services warrants it. The other opportunity that providers need to be thinking about strategically to remain relevant is how do they 
become referral partners for mm. the Lavangos and Teladocs of the world because ultimately they don't cover everything. And inevitably, some portion of the patients will need to go in for surgery or go in for whatever. Yep. And if I can proactively partner with them to be a preferred referral partner within their network, I'm getting access to a pool of consumers and and you know revenue opportunity that I wouldn't otherwise get access to. That's interesting. Almost like PCP is lead gen. One of my colleagues used to say that in most industries, uh, the person that you consider the rainmaker is obviously the one that gets compensated the most. Healthcare is like the only is exactly the opposite, where the primary care doctors are actually the rainmakers, but they get paid the least. <laughs> and so, organizations like Teladoc and Lavongo are, are uniquely positioned in some ways to capture more credit for providing uh, an upfront experience to the consumer that is so compelling that you know they should get paid for for uh, being able to to generate the the downstream referral funnel. And to that point that's that's a vestige of just how distribution was set up yeah. and that PCP is part of this org as things shift uh, that feels like an arbitrage waiting to happen. So uh, on the opportunity side what would you say for startups seeking to enter this space? We talked about incumbents. What would your key message or takeaways be for startups? There's two things that stick out to me. One is every digital health company who sells into the employer or the payer channel should think about what is their teledoc strategy and how do I partner with them to take advantage of the channel that they have built such that I can be an add-on component. That's one aspect of this. The other aspect is that I think we're at this tipping point where digital health as an industry is actually starting to get big enough that I as a startup can sell into that space. They make quicker decisions than incumbents. They will value what I have to bring to the table purely on the basis of better technology. So you can you can sort of build an initial core business just selling to the likes of, of Teladoc. They're going to need really significant infrastructure to make all this work, whether it's just integrating Livongo and Teladoc together, whether it's like the interoperability that we always talk about to make the actual care model work across that spectrum. So this is a, mm. a, a bit akin to what we saw in the fintech universe, where you know, companies like Plaid started by selling to fintech startups because that segment got to a tipping point or critical mass. So that was not the case a few years ago. Okay, you guys, bottom line it for me on the Teladoc Livongo deal or more broadly. Virtual care is is here and it's uh, it's here to stay in, in many, many different forms. But I think what this deal represents is a validation of that concept and the, and the fact that you can build a full stack business from the ground up outside of the traditional healthcare chassis and get it to scale in a very significant way. And it'll also be a huge forcing function for the incumbents, both providers and payers, to rethink their strategies and you know, consider actually incorporating virtual care into more of their core uh, offerings. And I would just add that uh, it is so tempting if, to, you know, if you're building a startup here to be tempted to start with the technology and figure out a go-to-market that works for that technology. And I think that's totally wrong. It's really what has made companies successful is to really figure out the go-to-market that will be successful, have technology that can do many different things and, and use it to succeed in the right go-to-market. The big winners here will have a very thoughtful plan there. And, and, and there's just no way around it in this complicated space of healthcare, you know, you know the, where technology adoption is tricky and go-to-market is complex, that people who can find their way through that go-to-market challenge, they'll be the ones with who are uh, build the successful startups. Fantastic. Thank you both for joining this segment of 16 Minutes. Thank you. Thanks, Sonal.